This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Europe, the end of Chacht Erechor. Agasuligum, a Makan Shah, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetoch, Ara, Igornamion, on Kestin Echol. Vientalam Aginom Griv, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Just a quick warning. This podcast contains content that some listeners may find distressing. I've gone to the dictionary to, to try to, to see what genocide means. I think you would have to believe that what has happened here is, is genocide by the Russian Federation. It's an attempt to wipe out a, a people. Today on the Indo-Daily, the second phase in the war on Ukraine. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has said Russia's large-scale offensive in the eastern Donbass region is well and truly underway. And we saw how Ukraine came under siege over the weekend as eastern attacks moved west. Lviv, for example, it was supposed to be a sanctuary of sorts, a western safe haven for Ukrainians fleeing from the war-torn east but not anymore. We're hearing uh, that there have been five targeted missile strikes on the city this morning. That's uh, Lviv, the city in the west of Ukraine that's been seen as a safe place for many people fleeing the war in the east. A series of powerful strikes on Lviv has left several dead. And war crimes and genocide now dominate the narrative on these atrocious attacks on Ukraine. The images of Bucha and Mariupol have demonstrated real Russians' intentions to the whole world. Ukraine needs weapon supplies, anything to repel Russian forces and stop their war crimes. He is a war criminal. This guy is brutal. And what's happening in Bucha is outrageous. And everyone's seen it. I'm Siobhan McGuire, and to discuss all of this and this very serious second phase of the invasion, I'm joined by Danica O'Bacon, who's a professor of politics at the School of Law and Government at Dublin City University, and John O'Brennan, who's professor of EU politics at Maynooth University. But just before I come to John and Danica, a week ago, Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley travelled out to Ukraine and he spoke with me about what he saw in the areas of Bucha and Erpen. I mean, we've all seen, you know, a house fire or a car accident or something that, you know, where, where, where lives are lost in a, in a, in a explosion or, or, or whatever. But to see the devastation go on for miles 
really is kind of it, it, it really does get to you because you, you feel you're you're in the middle of such a zone where there has been such a level of depravity visited on uh, not a family but not a community but but a city uh, an entire country so that this, the scale of it is really what gets you as you travel street by street um, it has been systematically bombed and shelled uh, you know, so, so 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 it is I think to me anyway um, obvious of a clear intent uh, by the Russian Federation to obliterate this 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 part of, of Ukraine and I've heard comments uh, I've, I've gone to the dictionary to to try to, to see what genocide means uh, and I think depending on regardless of, of, of what definition you take um, I think you would have to you would have to believe that what has happened here uh, is is genocide by the Russian Federation it's an attempt to wipe out a, a people um, who are I have to say you can see they have defended to the best of their ability we were told that there are still 20 30,000 people in the Lviv region alone who are waiting to sign up to the military waiting to receive their their command uh, and, and face the front line and that that shows the resilience clearly of the of the Ukrainian men who, who, who very much want to defend what they what they stand for the democracy that they have achieved and the independence that they'd had achieved uh, and they're not going to let that go lightly really they are a brave they are a brave um, they're a brave race can you describe to me what you saw on the ground? Yeah, well, we we travelled to Kiev initially, um, and we were then taken to Irpin and Busha. Now, as we left the city of Kiev, there were long lines of traffic, and what it appeared to be was that people were attempting to return to uh, the the area of Busha and Irpin, where uh, they knew that the Ukrainian forces had pushed back um, the, the Russian the Russian forces in in a couple of days prior to that. And I have to say, when I reached the point which was the front line of the battle between the two forces, um, we saw where that, and it's been it's been well documented, it's been seen in national and international media, of a bridge that was blowing up, blown up by the Ukrainian forces to prevent the tanks coming into the capital of Kiev. Just, you know, the initial sight of that, just utter devastation, a massive bridge and all buildings around it, um, completely blown apart. Um, and that was kind of the first introduction uh, that I got to um, that that sort of initial site of devastation. But we got beyond that. There was a temporary uh, bridge there that allowed us to get beyond it. And then as we moved into the area that had been occupied by the Russians, um, the sense of just utter devastation. I mean, you hear the, the term apocalyptic, uh, used um, and that's something we might be familiar with from watching films etc but it really was apocalyptic uh, when you saw large um, apartment blocks that we might be familiar with in, in Dublin and other parts of the country just entirely burnt out and bombed from from the top to the bottom uh, just like charred remains on some um you know, far-flung area that you'd never expect to see. These are these are homes and apartment complexes, very familiar with what what we'd be familiar with. It's 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 a modern European city, um, and to see it just completely devastated, the remains of cars along the side of the road where the occupants had been 
had been shot at. You could see the rifle holes uh, in the cars. And as we got out of the, the transport we were in and taken real close contact, you could see the blood staining on the car. Children's toys littered um, outside of the cars. Um, burned out shells of, of, of other vehicles. It just just appeared like something that, that you could only describe as utter devastation. It wasn't an isolated incident. It was street after street after street. And then the smell of those charred remains, whilst the, you know, the fires had gone out from the explosions, that stench of, of, of uh, you can only describe it as those charred remains of, 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 of buildings um, was still very much there. And Timmy, you visited a mass grave, didn't you? Yeah, we we, we, we were shown then what, you know, they tried to take us through what had happened and there were, some, there were some local people that had come back to see if there was anything left of their homes and in most cases there wasn't. But, you know, they relayed stories to us that many of the residents had had, had fled in the early stages of the, of the invasion, but some elderly people didn't and some felt maybe that they had a chance of, of survival by staying. They had nowhere to go and they, they, they stayed where the best... But as the as the Russian forces came through, they forced people out of their homes with the bombing and the shelling and, and the gunfire, and then just summarily shot them uh, on the street uh, and left bodies. And we, that has been documented. We've seen that on our television screens. They lie where they died. So many bodies all over Mariupol. Some buried right on the spot. And then what happened? Um, as they as they retreated, um, some of the local community that were still survived, together with um, a parish priest, managed to gather up some of the bodies and take them for temporary burial uh, to the church grounds. Uh, when we got there, uh, the process of removing the bodies again to document their uh, who they were, try to identify who they were, um, and begin that process of, I suppose, putting together a file. If ever there's a chance to, to 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 prosecute Putin and his aggressors for war crimes, because we were told that many of these had been shot at point blank range in the back of the head, they were they, they were executed, which constitutes a war crime. It's I suppose often difficult for those of us that don't come from a military background to understand a war crime, but 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 there are some rules around the engagement in war, and it's the targeting of military installations and the like, um, but where there's a direct attack by military forces on innocent civilians that, uh, you know, constitutes a, a crime under, under various different war protocols. And from what we saw, that was very clearly the case. Um, the targeting of innocent civilians was, was, was the modus operandi of the Russian forces as they came through Erpin and Bucha. And, you know, that's just one area uh, as we see, there are many other areas of, of Ukraine targeted on a nightly basis and on a daily basis where where the Russians are, 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 are chived in. But it was really difficult to see a JCB with men in boiler suits um, removing clay and, and lifting bodies back 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 to the surface um, and, you know, begin that process. They were being taken to the morgue uh, where, where post-mortems would be carried out and you know, hopefully they'd be buried at a later stage in, in in an appropriate way. But you know, just just watching that in silence, there was an eerie silence around the churchyard. There was some media there, and it was mainly excavators and 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 people uh, just going through that that detailed process. But my God, what you know, you, you just there was just such a silence, with the exception of the of the engine of the the JCB. But 
the people just were, were in, in complete shock. And I have to say, those of us that were, were, were visiting that day, um, really in shock to see it at, 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 at first hand and to see all the devastation. I mean, the church still remained, but virtually everything around it was, was, was completely destroyed, um, completely blown apart. And that was Timmy Dooley, Fianna Fáil senator, telling me about his own experiences there in Ukraine. I'm going to come to you both, John and Donica now, so we can take a look at exactly what is happening in Ukraine this week. We know that there is a large scale Russian offensive underway in the eastern Donbass region. Can you talk us through what we know? I mean, obviously, yesterday there was an awful lot of reporting about this. Sure. Um, Well, ever since the troops, the Russian troops were withdrawn from around the capital, Kiev, there's been some speculation about why that occurred and what Putin's next move would be. And the general consensus is is that um, Putin overreached himself uh, in trying to launch simultaneous attacks from multiple directions. They had lost, uh, by some conservative estimates, seven generals and perhaps 15, the Ukrainians claimed 20,000 troops in, in about five to six weeks. And that was certainly unsustainable. Uh, so it seems that they changed tactics and they decided to consolidate their offensive uh, in the southeast of Ukraine, in the Donbass region. That's actually where many people thought that the war would be fought exclusively if there was a war to be fought. It seems now, uh, as was expected, that the Russian troops have been redeployed uh, to the southeast of Ukraine. And as uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, announced that they're launching uh, a major offensive to to extend their control in that region. Uh, The only question now is how much territory uh, they are seeking uh, to acquire. Uh, The the plan that Putin has, um, you know, in Ukraine has never been kind of revealed in detail in advance. You hear these kind of retroactive endorsements saying that everything is going according to plan, but that plan is not kind of clearly outlined. So we don't know, for example, whether they would stop at Luhansk and Donetsk if they managed to secure them. Would they perhaps try and establish a land corridor connecting uh, Donbass to Crimea? All that is still unknown. Uh, but what is known is that Ukraine is is under relentless siege, and not just in Donbass, by the way. It's worth emphasising that there were attacks throughout Ukraine, uh, not least in Lviv, an area that up until now had been considered a relatively safe place. Indeed, that's where most of the international journalistic community are based uh, and indeed is only uh, a few kilometres from Poland, which is, of course, a member of NATO. John, I wonder, can I bring you in here? Can we look at the war crimes allegations that are being heavily reported in Ukraine? And of course, you know, we we, we heard uh, the reports from Bucha um, in recent weeks. It really is quite staggering what's going on there. It is staggering, yes. Uh, as soon as Russian formations began to withdraw from around Kiev, it became very clear that there was a pattern emerging and it was of civilians being killed in all kinds of different ways, bodies being found by the hundred in Buka, in Irpin and in other suburbs and dormitory towns around Kiev. And I think this kind of fits with the narrative that is uh, being deployed in Moscow and within Russia, that this is about denazification, that Ukrainians, in a sense, are the intermeshion of our era. That's what the Nazis referred to their enemies as during the uh, Second World War. Um, And, you know, if you dehumanize any population to that extent and that degree, it's perfectly logical that war crimes will flow from this. Uh, We are, of course, in the early stage of 
finding out about all of this. And in other contexts, in Bosnia, for example, in the 1990s, it was some time before uh, the real scale of the war crimes that had been perpetrated emerged. In, in, in that case, in fact, the Serbs went to enormous lengths to actually take bodies away, bury them in uh, different parts of uh, the Balkans, including in Serbia proper. And if you look at the commemoration that takes place in Srebrenica every summer, it very movingly, it involves families who have finally been able to locate where their loved ones out of those eight and a half thousand that were murdered at Srebrenica, they're, they're subject to reburial. But all of that is incredibly difficult and it involves very extensive forensic logistics and things like that. So I've no doubt that the scale of the crimes being committed is of that nature, and we are going to see much more of that revealed in the months to come. And what exactly is a war crime? Do we have a a, a clear definition of what it is, John? Well, neither of us uh, is a legal scholar or a specialist in Mm. international human rights law. But I think, you know, there is a consensus that where civilians are being targeted, firstly, and are being targeted in a very deliberate way, that that constitutes a war crime. And again, you've just got to look at and take at face value the language that Russian politicians and Russian media acolytes of the regime are using. The the, the language they're using is the language of annihilation. And um, we shouldn't be surprised at that. There's been a kind of consistency in the discourse led by Putin himself in that landmark uh, speech that he made or essay that he wrote rather in the summer of 2021, where he basically claimed that Ukraine wasn't a real country. By definition, it didn't have a right to exist. Um, So, you know, although we may see differences at the margins, the United States and France, for example, have have stopped short of calling this a genocide. Um, I think it's very clear that we're talking about very serious war crimes being committed by Russian forces. And we've had uh, President Biden call it genocide, haven't we? Yes. And in itself, that's quite unusual. If we go back to 1994, for example, the United States went out of its way to not call what was happening in Rwanda a genocide. And remember there, the scale of the killing was quite extraordinary. 850,000 people were killed in a six-week period after the 6th of April 1994. The Americans did everything possible to avoid terming it a genocide because that would bring forth obligation, an obligation to intervene. And I, I think that's been the reason that um, you know, we can think about the Ukraine war as uh, much different. And the very fact that Biden would say that term and the way that he would refer to Putin in the way that he has referred to him as a killer, for example, uh, I think is indicative of uh, just where Western sympathies lie here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danica, I can see you nodding there. You want to come in? Absolutely. No, I think John put it very well that the kind of ideological groundwork has already been laid for the annihilation of the Ukrainian people. And indeed, there's been a notable shift even during the course of this war. Um, Ria Novosti, for example, which would be kind of the Russian equivalent of, of RTE, it's kind of the state media, uh, they, in, in a very kind of uh, chilling piece, 
argue that, well, at the beginning of the war, you know, when they thought it would be very easy and, and, and swift victory, they, they were convinced that it was simply, that the Nazification of Ukraine was simply at the top, at the elite level. And therefore, their job was to decapitate uh, the Ukrainian elite in a special military operation. But now, having seen the resistance uh, in Ukraine, among Ukrainians, they're convinced that it goes much deeper than that and that Nazification now is throughout society so that there's not only going to have to be denazification, but there's going to have to be de-Ukrainianization. And that was said very explicitly that the, the Ukrainian identity for them is some kind of inflated uh, artificial ethnicity, which doesn't se- exist separately from Russians. So you're absolutely saying here that there is no such people as a Ukrainian uh, people. And indeed, anybody who argues uh, that there is, is a Nazi. And as John rightly points out, then once you start describing people in such de- dehumanized ways, you create uh, a, a logic uh, and indeed a carte blanche for, for the kind of war crimes that we are seeing. Uh, to go to your point about Joe Biden, um, he has some form in this in recent times. He, uh, going against the uh, advice of successive State Departments over many years, uh, described what happened in 1915 in the Ottoman Empire uh, to the Armenians as genocide. And that was considered to be uh, a, a rather watershed moment. Though it does highlight another factor that sometimes the word genocide is a, a political charge. Uh, and, and this is often a, a problem that we get into that, as John rightly points out, this is a legal issue uh, first and foremost. And I think what we have to do first is to identify what is happening. And this is very difficult to do when there's a war taking place. Uh, we have to collect the information, the testimonies of the people. And that's a matter for government officials. It's a matter for independent journalists. And it's a matter indeed for even in Ireland, when people are coming here, we need to hear what they have to say, what they are fleeing from. And, and then the most difficult part perhaps is to create the mechanisms whereby people will be punished, not just at the elite level, but at the, at, at, at the, at the level of the troops who are committing these atrocities on the ground in villages and towns and cities throughout Ukraine. And I think what we've seen, um, you mentioned it actually, Donica, in relation to Lviv at the the weekend, um, the supposed safe haven for Ukrainians, you know, fleeing from the east to to this part of the west where they could actually take a breath, where they could actually feel like they were were perhaps escaping the worst of it. And now the atrocities have, of course, extended there. So we have this countrywide threat now of what we seen in the likes of Boucher, um, you know, being reflected in places like Lviv. That's that's true. And I think the targeting of somewhere like Lviv is to demonstrate to Ukrainians uh, that nowhere is safe for them. I mean, we have to to recognize that five million people have now left Ukraine as refugees and seven million people are internally displaced people. So 12 million people have been forced to leave their homes out of a population of little more than 40 million. So this is a remarkable uh, trauma that's been visited upon a people in such a short space of time. And and it seems to be the, the, the attacks of the last few days, because there has been an escalation in other parts of Ukraine outside of Donbass, it seems to be a, a fit of peak in a way for the loss of the Moskva ship, which was, of course, of immense strategic and symbolic importance uh, to, to the Russians. And indeed, in the Russian state media, there have been calls to escalate this conflict as a result of the loss of that uh, important flagship. John, where does it go from here? I mean, in terms of, and, and you know, gosh, I'm not asking you to have all the answers here, but in terms of your expertise, what do we know of Putin's intentions when it comes to his actions against Ukraine? Well, we know, as Donica said, that um, Putin has not declared his hand. We simply don't know what the end point of this military campaign might be. However, there's a lot of speculation around the 9th of May, and that he will want to have a definitive conclusion to 
the Donbass in particular by that date. The 9th of May is hugely important in Russia's modern consciousness because it represents Freedom Day, the day that they won the Great Patriotic War, as they call it, the war against the Nazis. And I think it's going to be vital for him to demonstrate that this hasn't been a folly and that there are real gains that are accrued as a result of the military campaign. And that means, um, at the very least, I would have thought, consolidating Russian control over the Donbass and perhaps going as far as Dnipro uh, to that boundary. There is some sort of evidence that Russian troop formations regrouping from the north have been heading south and trying to envelop Ukrainian forces in different pockets. But um, to, to go as far as Dnipro, I think, would be hugely ambitious relative to the capacity of the Russian military to actually prosecute this campaign. Because there's a lot of evidence of very, very low morale amongst Russian troops. Um, conscription is taking place when Putin said manifestly that it wouldn't take place. And <clears throat> we're also seeing deep and enduring logistical problems. Resupply of Russian forces in particular has proved enormously difficult. And my sense is that the Ukrainians are winning and that Putin will not be able to achieve what he wants to before the 9th of May, even at a minimal level. And that then increases the risk that in order to score a quick victory, the Russians are prepared to go beyond all established norms. And that means potentially using chemical weapons on a large scale, or even it's been suggested using a tactical or limited nuclear weapon. Well, my thanks there to Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley, uh, Donica O'Bacon, Professor of Politics at the School of Law and Government in Dublin City University, and John O'Brennan, Professor of EU Politics at Maynooth University. I'm Siobhan McGuire, and today's Indo Daily was presented and produced by myself, researched by Garrett Mulhall, recorded by Gavin Hennessy, with sound design by Graham Davidson. Archive clips from independent.ie, RTE News, BBC News, Sky News, CNBC, CNN, and Al Jazeera.